If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Professor Anna Lemke is a psychiatrist at Stanford and one of the world's foremost authorities on the science of addiction. Her latest book, Dopamine Nation, explores the neuroscience of compulsive overconsumption, whether of drugs or food, sex or news, gambling or social media, and all the other stimuli competing for our attention in the modern world. What can we do to regain control and balance in this age of instant gratification? Last week, she joined us to explore the answers to that question in conversation with Kirkland Newman, founder and editor of the pioneering mental health platform, MindHealth360. In this book, you look at the neurobiology of the pleasure-pain balance and what drives this sort of pursuit of dopamine in our societies and its impact on our mental health, essentially. So can you tell us a little bit about the neurobiology of this sort of dopamine addiction that we have and how it plays out? Sure. So for me, one of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years or so is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And very broadly speaking, uh, they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine a kind of a teeter-totter or a seesaw in a kid's playground when we experience pleasure. It tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. There are certain rules governing this balance. And the first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis, such that with any deviation from the level position, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance. And Understanding how our brains do that is really fundamental to understanding what happens in the brain as we become addicted. So, for example, uh, when, when we do something that's reinforcing or pleasurable, that releases dopamine, a reward neurotransmitter in our brain. In the reward circuitry, that balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than our brain adapts to increase dopamine firing by downregulating dopamine transmission involuting postsynaptic dopamine receptors to bring dopamine firing back down to homeostatic levels. But our brain brings it not just to that baseline level of firing, but actually below baseline. And I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. 
but the gremlins like it on the balance, so they don't get off as soon as it's level. They stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. Now that's the come down, the hangover, the after effect, or really the craving, that moment of wanting to have one more drink, eat one more piece of chocolate, watch one more TikTok video. Now if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored, but if we don't wait, essentially those gremlins start to accumulate on the pain side of the balance, and they eventually camp out there, changing our hedonic set point, such that we need more of our drug over time to get the same effect. And when we're not using, we're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. That's incredibly interesting. And is there an evolutionary reason why this happens? So as you know, uh, you know, evolutionary explanations are often just so stories because we don't ever know for sure. But if you think about the world in which humans have lived for most of our existence, it's been a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. And if you think about this mechanism whereby um, every pleasure is followed by its opposite and with repeated pleasure, the pain gets to be more, the pleasure gets to be less. It seems like a cruel trick of mother nature. Why do that? But if you think about um, what would make us survive in a world of extreme scarcity, it is a mechanism that makes us the eternal seekers, never satisfied with what we have, always wanting more. So this mechanism is perfectly designed for that kind of world, right? Where as soon as we find a berry bush and we eat some berries, you know, we're not satisfied for long, we're off to look for the next berry bush. If we were to be satisfied for very long periods of time, blissed out for a day or two or 10, then we're vulnerable to a lion coming to eating, eating us or an enemy tribe or what have you. So it really is a very apt mechanism for a world in which rewards are uh, hard to come by. Unfortunately, it's woefully mismatched for the world of overwhelming overabundance that we live in today. And I think that's the biggest problem. And I think you say this really beautifully in terms of, you know, the, the, the real disconnect is the mismatch between the current societies, which in some sense have, you know, they're capitalistic societies, which is, have weaponized pleasure, essentially and also weaponized pain in some sense. And if you look at it from a Darwinian perspective, we are maladapted in some sense to our environment or our, you know, we haven't adapted fast enough to our environments. And so there is a sort of biological mismatch. And so we're, as you say in your book, so bombarded with easy access to cheap dopamine, whether it's drugs or shopping or food, gambling, sex, processed foods, synthetic opioids, etc. And, you know, so our dopamine receptors are just completely bombarded. And this is a real health crisis in some ways. And how does this manifest in your practice of addiction medicine? How do you see it in your patients, but also in society at large? So, you know, I've been practicing psychiatry for going on 25 years. And in the early aughts, you know, along with the sort of traditional types of drug use disorders, alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, um, heroin, um, what we were seeing, which was different initially, was that we were seeing more women come in with um, 
addictive disorders and more older people coming in with addictive disorders. Now, the reason this is salient is because historically, those have been demographic groups relatively protected from the problems of addiction. Whereas what we're seeing now is a kind of a telescoping phenomenon with women and alcohol use disorder, where the rates of men to women have historically been five to one, two to one uh, in pre previous generations and are now one to one. So we have as many millennial women presenting with alcohol uh, use disorders as we have millennial men, which is a real change and a societal change, many different factors related to that. Also older people. So that's the first piece. Demographic groups previously um, somewhat insulated from this problem seem to be no longer insulated from this problem. And now there are many uh, explanations for that, you know, changes in uh, societal norms around drinking and drug use, as well as the problems of increased access, which I, I talk about in my book. In the last 20 years, additionally, what we're seeing is more and more people coming in addicted to the very same pills their doctors are prescribing, opioids, stimulants, benzodiazepines, but also importantly, uh, people addicted to drugs that never existed before, particularly digital drugs. People, more and more cases of uh, online sex and compulsive masturbation, uh, video games, social media addictions, uh, online shopping, online gambling, or just online, right? So now there are 12-step groups for sort of internet and tech addiction more broadly, just people who find themselves in this compulsive loop. Oftentimes people will sort of challenge the notion that you can get addicted to a behavior or a digital drug as you can get addicted to drugs and alcohol, and I really wish I could invite those folks into my clinic to see the kind of devastating effects that behavioral addictions have on people who are vulnerable to that particular drug of choice. The natural history is identical to drug and alcohol addiction. People start out using to have fun or to solve a problem. If it works for them, they repeat that behavior. Over time, it changes their brain, changes their hedonic set point. Now they need more and more to get the same effect. They're marshalling all their resources and creativity toward getting the drug, using the drug, maybe hiding drug use, getting another round of the drug. And also, there's a significant contribution to psychiatric disorders, anxiety, depression, uh, inattention, insomnia. So we're seeing also more and more people who have all of the kinds of privileges that you would think would be associated with a healthy life, who are coming in morbidly depressed, unable to get, get out of bed, unable to go to school, unable to go to work, guilt compounding uh, their, their despair because they can see objectively that they have it pretty good. And again, that's because this sort of fire hose of dopamine causes our brain to react by down-regulating dopamine transmission. And that chronic dopamine deficit state is essentially uh, identical to a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety. Plus, we know when we intervene and have people abstain for a period of time from their drug of choice, whether it's sex or cocaine or sugar or shopping, their mood gets better without our having to do any other intervention. So would you say that a lot of your mental health um, sort of morbidities that you see in your clinic are driven by this overconsumption of dopamine and, and the fact that, you know, in our society, we are culturally acclimatized to seek out pleasure and to avoid pain. And one of the things that really struck me when I was reading your book 
was the fact that, you know, so many of our pharmacological interventions are designed to avoid pain, whether it's physical pain, mental pain, you know, insomnia, sedatives, just the pain of not being able to focus the ADHD meds. And so there's this sort of cultural thing where not only are we pursuing pleasure and easy access to sort of instant gratification, but also we're avoiding pain. And so it's a sort of, it's a perfect storm in some sense. So would you say that this phenomenon is creating most of the mental health issues that you're seeing, or is it hard to tell? You know, that, that is a hypothesis that I have, right? That somehow, somewhere along the way, uh, our mental health interventions have sort of lost the thread, so to speak, in, in that so much of our focus has been on helping people uh, not feel pain, uh, to avoid painful or challenging circumstances, to shield themselves from trauma or triggers for trauma. Um, the, whole, the whole notion that pain is dangerous, that it can set you up for future pain in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder, that is, in fact, a very modern idea, modern being like the last 100, 150 years. You know, if you look back at, you know, medical literature from the 1800s, for example, it was very clear that doctors believed that some degree of pain was salutary. Um, the leading surgeons of the days in the 1850s didn't actually want to embrace the new invention of general anesthesia for surgery because they believed that exposing their patients to a certain degree of physical pain during surgery would boost the immune response, uh, boost the cardiovascular response, would expedite healing. Um, ironically, what we are finding now with some very recent reports is that Patients who receive opioids perioperatively to protect themselves from pain may actually indeed have a slower healing trajectory. And opioids do, in fact, suppress to some degree the immune response. Um, so, so it is interesting to see, you know, this, this, this shift in medicine toward doctors must do everything within their power to insulate patients from pain, uh, with a commensurate shift in the culture, this idea that pain is dangerous, pain is bad for you, good parenting involves, um, you know, clearing the way for your child, insulating them from pain, making sure there's no bullying, that there's no um, sort of ranking where one child feels, and, and, you know, as a parent myself, I mean, I can certainly I also feel very badly when my children, you know, are, are sort of at the bottom of some kind of pecking order. That makes me feel very sad for them, especially when we live in a culture that's so fixated on sort of um, these invidious comparisons and rankings and things between individuals. But indeed, this kind of approach to parenting and to doctoring may be preventing our patients or children from having the opportunity to build up the mental calluses that they need in order to be successful in their lives. Um, wh what we're finding as well is that rates of depression and anxiety are going up all over the world, but they're going up fastest in the wealthiest nations of the world, which just sort of boggles the mind. Those are all also the very same nations where we're prescribing the most antidepressants, we're prescribing the most anxiolytics, where people have you know, access to the most you know, mental health care treatment, state of the art. And we, we sort of have this mantra that if only, you know, more people had access to mental health care, the world would be a better place. But I'm, I'm not sure that's true. The numbers are not bearing that out. The more mental health care we're delivering it as it's currently conceptualized, 
the, the sicker uh, from a population health perspective our patients seem to be getting. Yeah, in fact, you talk about the happiness study and the fact that the you know so many of these uh, countries, whether it's the U.S. or Belgium or New Zealand or you know, are increasing in their levels of unhappiness at exponential rates, whilst you know they are taking all these antidepressants and you know so there's something clearly not right. And so there's a paradox in that the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain seems to be leading to greater unhappiness and greater mental health issues. And so I think, you know, the question is also, you know, we also have the smartphone. And if you look at our children, for instance, and I think what you say about frustration for children is really important as well. And one of the things that you mentioned in your, in your book is the cold water exposure and the hormetic effects of unpleasant things like very cold water, very hot temperatures. And apparently, you know, that also releases dopamine, but then that last, that release of dopamine lasts longer and in some ways is more salutary, just as it also, you know, if you experience pain, it also releases endorphins and sort of natural opiates, which then last longer. And so I'm combining a few things here, but you know, when you look at children and how we protect them and shield them and how we avoid pain, you know, that's not borne out by the actual neurobiology showing that the dopamine that you get and the endorphins that you get from these sort of painful experience is actually longer lasting. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Yeah, so I mean, when you think about, you know, our ancient neural wiring, again, the way it's set up is for us to have to do a lot of work in order to find very scarce resources. In the process of doing that work, our pleasure-pain balance tilts slightly to the side of pain. We're hungry, we're tired. Then we find food, clothing, shelter, a mate, what sometimes are referred to as the natural rewards, and that then restores us back to a level balance. So in other words, we've sort of paid for our dopamine up front, and then we use the dopamine as a way to uh, sort of, uh, as, as, as the payback. And of course, that's that's not how we live today, right? We we sit on our couch, we 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 swipe right, we swipe left, we have it delivered directly to us through the phone, or or actually a, an actual physical substance, a drug, or a food, or a drink, or something delivered to the doorstep. There's no work necessary put, and so our our brains really are are reeling, not not really knowing how to compute, um, you know, that phenomenon. And if you, again, look back at that pleasure-pain balance that we started with, 
We saw that when we press on the pleasure side, those neuroadaptation gremlins hop on the pain side. But it's also true that if we press on that pain side by intentionally doing things that are physically or psychologically challenging for us, those gremlins will hop on the pleasure side and we will actually get dopamine release. And that's a whole branch of science called hormesis. Hormesis is a Greek word that means to set in motion. And essentially what we're doing is that by the, the science of hormesis has shown that when an organism is exposed to mild to moderate doses of toxic stimuli, it actually makes the organism more resilient. Now, too much of that stimulus in the organism is injured or dies, too little and you don't get the reaction, but that right-sized pain essentially triggers an injury which the body then responds to by upregulating feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine, like serotonin, like norepinephrine. The classic example is exercise. We know that exercise is actually directly toxic to cells, but in being toxic triggers the body's healing mechanisms. And what we get over the latter half of exercise is a gradual increase in dopamine firing. And then when we stop exercise, dopamine levels remain elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline levels of dopamine firing because we're always releasing dopamine at a kind of baseline tonic level. In contrast to intoxicants, which we're pinging you know, our brain with all day long, where we get a sudden upward spike in dopamine firing, followed by dopamine freefall, not just to baseline, but below baseline into that dopamine deficit state, the state of craving, which has us wanting to reach for it again, and hopefully then going back up to baseline where the craving alleviates. But with repeated exposure, we essentially settle out in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state, and now we're in a constant state of craving. So you're absolutely right. We recommend to our patients to do things that are difficult, that are painful. You know, the analogy in therapy is kind of exposure therapy, but we're not doing enough exposure, and, and we're mainly using it in the context of anxiety disorders. But really, in, in our clinic, and what we're recommending more broadly is that in general, uh, patients sort of embrace their painful experiences, learn to tolerate and sit with them, and even view them as salutary as a way, again, to build, build resilience. I think that's so interesting. And I mean, that leads us somewhat to, you know, what can we do about this? Because there's a huge, obviously, crisis, both in mental health and addiction in our societies. And also, I worry a lot about children and adolescents and the fact that, you know, there's a generation that's growing up with smartphones, which is sort of unprecedented. What do you, before we get into solutions, I mean, what is your take on this sort of uh, the problem of this dopamine addiction and digital access amongst young people and how it's actually shaping their brains? Because one of the things you say also in your book, which I think is fascinating, is there seems to be an inverse correlation to make it very simple between the, the sort of the reward center and emotion that you get when you get a hit of pleasure and the PFC, the prefrontal cortex. And so, you know, essentially when you're in that reward center and you're getting that wonderful hit, you're not in your executive function. And so you lose your capacity to plan long-term, to think of the consequences to, you know, and you talk about PFC, so prefrontal cortex atrophy, which, you know, so, so actually that part of our brain, which is so important because it's our rational executive function, is actually atrophying. What does this mean for our children and our adolescents? 
Yeah. So I always like to start sort of by saying that, you know, these digital devices are amazing tools that bring many good things to our lives. But it's also very important to talk about sort of the dark underbelly, the unintended consequences, which are also um, powerful and many, right? The problem of uh, addiction to these devices and to the digital drugs that that they uh you know, that they provide a portal to, um, and that they're engineered to be addictive, right? Uh, they're basically um, very cognitively adherent. Uh, they stimulate a lot of dopamine uh, in our brain's reward pathway. They, they release that dopamine very quickly. They're very short duration. For example, if you take a, a moving video, um, that's very stimulating to the brain, the visual cortex, auditory cortex, reward centers. And if then you shorten that to, you know, a 12 second video, now you've sort of got the equivalent of sort of crack cocaine, a very fast onset, very fast offset. So a heavy spike in dopamine followed by rapid dopamine freefall and short acting fast onset drugs, whatever their nature are highly addictive because you, it, it sort of whiplashes you through this cycle of intoxication, withdrawal, drug seeking, intoxication, withdrawal, drug seeking. So we really must be honest about the the you know the incredible uh, potential for addiction to the devices and and to the the digital media itself. Now it, it's important to acknowledge that the vast majority of people who drink alcohol will not go on to develop an alcohol use disorder, and that is going to be true too for digital media. The vast majority of people who are using digital media, although I would say we're all struggling to some degree to figure out how to limit these devices in our lives, but most of us will be able to make some sort of self-correction. But I can tell you in our clinic, we see that you know 10% or so of individuals who actually are so vulnerable to this problem that, that they're unable to function, unable to get out of bed, unable to care for themselves, depressed, anxious, suicidal. And when we take the digital device away, they get better without our having done anything else. So I just think the power of that, that we're seeing boots on the ground front line of the impact on some of our children is enough for us to have to say as a society, okay, we have to protect ourselves from the dangerous aspects of this. And we can't furthermore expect it just to be on the parents um, or just on those nuclear families that this is a this is a systemic problem because the devices have penetrated every aspect of our lives, right? I mean, you don't take your kid to a dentist without having the the set up the movie there for them to see, right? You don't get into an elevator without it pumping out music. Like we're constantly, all of us being stimulated. So that's why I often talk about this problem being, you know, a problem of the Anthropocene, like climate change, the ways in which human behavior has changed the world we live in, in a way that's threatening our well-being, conspiring against uh, our human thriving. So it can't just be a bottom-up process, just like with climate change. It's not going to be enough for me to use cloth bags instead of plastic. We also need top-down interventions. We need the companies that make and profit from these digital media to come together and think about ways to help us help ourselves. We need schools uh, to really rethink their integration of technology uh, in the learning space. You know, there was this idea, uh, every child, uh, every uh, single child, a single iPad, that that was going to make 
everybody, a, you know, a little baby Einstein. And now really what it's done is, you know, made almost everybody have some level of attention deficit disorder. So I'm very strongly advocating uh, for banning smartphones from the school day, not just at the discretion of individual teachers, but as a top-down policy. Here in the United States, we have some schools, mostly private schools who have done that. And they're saying that their, you know, their student wellness has gone way up, that schools are noisy again because kids are actually socializing with each other in real life. We need the government to, you know, uh, come up with regulatory interventions. And by the way, we do that all the time. We don't let kids go into casinos and gamble. We don't let kids, uh, you know, buy cigarettes or buy alcohol. You know, it's wild. It's a wild west exactly how to regulate it. Privacy concerns butt up right against uh, sort of the guardrails against kids using certain sites. So it's, it's a tricky problem, but it's certainly a problem worth attending to. And it's interesting because, you know, the problem with the three sort of behavioral addictions, whether it's smartphones or food or sex, is, you know, you can't just do away with them. Abstinence doesn't work. And so it's all about how do you moderate it? And I think in your book, you have some fantastic suggestions for that, you know, in terms of digital dopamine fast and, you know, self-binding and the pursuit of pain. Could you talk us through a little bit about these solutions that you suggest, which, because yes, you know, certainly governments need to do something and companies need to do something, and that's absolutely key. But because that's, you know, we are the Wild West and it's taking some time, I think we have to, as individuals and as parents, intervene and implement some of the changes that you suggest, whether it's self-binding or pursuing pain or pursuing connection or radical honesty, as you suggest. Can you talk us through these sort of your top five solutions to this? Yeah. So basically, you know, I, I outline the kind of clinical approach that we have seen be successful in our clinic um, in, in hopes that, that people can implement it themselves in their own lives and, and see if it works for them. Uh, I use a dopamine acronym. So D stands for data. This is where we just ask people to identify what they're using, how much and how often, whether it's pornography or alcohol or cannabis or, or sugar. Um, and this, this functions in two ways. Number one, it allows me to know what the patient is doing, but it also allows the patient to know because uh, there's a funny way in which we lose the ability to see our own behavior when we're chasing dopamine. And we lose the sense of true cause and effect. We, we don't really see uh, its true impact on our lives. But when we stop it for a period of time, which is the main intervention, um, we're able to recapture that. So, you know, the, just gathering the data is the first thing. The O of dopamine is having patients identify why they use, I think, you know, so that we can understand what they're getting out of it that's positive. The P stands for problems. What are the problems associated with it? Often with kids, the only problem they identify is that their parents don't want them to use it. Um, but, you know, that's a problem, right? If they have a good, healthy attachment with that parent, they, they want the relationship to go well, too. So we, we kind of use that. But another big problem is, again, tolerance and the drug stops working over time, turns on them, does the opposite. So we kind of talk through that, talk about the pleasure-pain balance. And then the A of the dopamine acronym stands for abstinence. And this is where we invite our patients to do an experiment where they would abstain from their drug of choice for 30 days. 
Now, if it's cannabis or alcohol or cocaine, that's sort of straightforward. But you're right. If it's sex, it's like, well, what, is, what does that mean? Typically, for sex, we would say no, orga- or, no orgasms with yourself or anybody else for 30 days. If it's a food problem, we might ask them to identify sugar as the main problem or ultra-processed food of any sort as the main problem and have them eliminate that for 30 days. Um, you know, if it's, uh, let's say, a workaholism problem, maybe they would uh, sort of eliminate working outside of certain time periods for 30 days or abstaining from certain types of work or mediums or abstain from travel or something like that. And then we always warn patients that they're going to feel worse before they feel better. And this is probably the most important thing that we say. Again, if you go back to that pleasure pain balance, when you immediately remove the reward, those gremlins that have accumulated on the pain side of the balance will smash it down to the side of pain. Patients will go into withdrawal. Again, the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior are psychological, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, craving. But if patients can just get through the first 10 to 14 days, it gets so much easier. And when they get out of that vortex of craving, they begin to feel better, less anxious, less depressed. But also, very importantly, they begin to have more cognitive clarity on the behavior itself. I can't tell you how many patients who do the 30-day dopamine fast say, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much energy and time I put into using that substance. And now that I'm out of sort of the pull of that black hole of craving, it seems almost surreal to me. So it's like they, they don't even recognize themselves. That's a really important moment. The other thing that happens with that 30-day fast is that patients are able to say, oh, you know, I thought that cannabis was helping me sleep, but now I'm sleeping so much better, this kind of realization that it wasn't actually doing what they thought it was. In the moment, it was working to uh, restore the balance, which gave them relief, so that part's real, but the cumulative effect was just to accumulate uh, more gremlins on the pain side of the balance. So, So that's really like the key intervention The rest of the acronym, um, M stands for mindfulness. As you know, mindfulness is the ability to observe our thoughts and feelings without judging them, but also without running away from them. And that's a really important exercise. When we can't reach for our drug of choice, then uh, that's a wonderful opportunity to practice mindfulness and see how the craving can sort of wash over us, but then dissipate on its own without our having to actually respond to it. It's a really important moment. Insight, the I stands for insight. I've talked a little bit about that, but again, those aha moments, not just that we're vulnerable to that particular drug, but also triggers. So really, another really fascinating finding in neuroscience is that not only do we get a dopamine spike, you know, initially in response to something that's rewarding or reinforcing, but we have a learned cycle around it. Whereas if we see a reminder of that drug, we get a little dopamine spike followed by a little dopamine deficit state that then sets up the craving to make us want to do the work to get the drug itself. So for example, that vibration that we feel in our pockets that we got an alert um, basically gives us a little dopamine spike followed by a little mini dopamine deficit state, gremlins on the pain side of the balance, that sets up the craving that makes it very hard not to then reach for the phone and look at what, what is incoming. So those kinds of behavior loops that are driven by this physiologic urge to restore homeostasis are very important to recognize, which then gets this idea of self-binding. 
In the world today, we are constantly bombarded, not just with rewards, but cues and reminders for rewards. This is not a passive experience. These rewards chase us down. They show up in our inbox. They show up on our news feed. They show up on the side of YouTube or whatever we're watching. Um, such that part of recovery, especially that being having a successful dopamine fast, is going to involve not just creating barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice, but also between ourselves and these triggers, right? So that we're not constantly being reminded. And that's what self-binding is. It's just trying to create a world within a world where we're not so exposed to the drugs and the reminders of the drug that really test our endurance, right? Because willpower doesn't last forever. And so, okay, so that's a few sort of solutions. Another, I mean, I have so many thoughts. It's, it's, I'm trying to make sure that we cover everything. One of them is, you know, how do you know when you've tipped into that pathological area as a, you know, how do you distinguish healthy behavior from pathological behavior, especially in our children? And, you know, it's one thing to be fully addicted and it really affects your life. But what about the smaller sort of side effects, essentially, which is, okay, you know, you're still functioning, you're still doing okay mentally, but, you know, you probably focus a little less. And there's also the opportunity cost of the thoughts that you're not having. And the, you know, how do you address that? And how do you judge when it's really becoming a problem and affecting not just sort of your mental health, but also the quality of your thoughts and the quality of your feelings and your life and your emotional life, and especially when it's when it's your kids as well? Yeah, you know, it, it's very insidious. Um, and we're very bad at personally tracking when those behaviors sort of start to tip into something that's maladaptive and unhealthy, which is why the dopamine fast is not just for people who have acknowledged they have a problem. I think it's even for people who might wonder if it's a problem. And that fast is an opportunity to self-observe withdrawal if it comes up, because it often will, especially, you know, with our devices when we kind of wonder about that. And then we try to give them up and realize how much we're caught in that uh, compulsive loop of checking or wanting to check. So I think the dopamine fast can be a really a good way to um, assess our relationship with that substance or behavior. But the other things that we look for are sort of the three C's, um, control, compulsions, and uh, consequences. So we repeatedly say we're going to cut back, but we're not able to, out of control use. Compulsion is a sort of a narrowing of our attention and an increased salience of that substance or behavior, such that other things that used to give us pleasure seem less enjoyable. And then consequences, you know, runs the gamut from sort of difficulty with uh, um, uh, relationships, with work, with school, to uh, mental health consequences, insomnia, depression, anxiety. I have so many patients that come in seeking help for depression and anxiety, insomnia, not for compulsive overconsumption per se, but in a screening, we find out they're spending enormous amounts of time on the internet, or they drink a lot of alcohol, or they're smoking pot every day. And I will then suggest to them that as a first intervention, we do kind of a dopamine fast or an abstinence trial to see if that resets reward pathways. Because essentially what we're doing is giving time for those gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. And in about 80% of individuals, 
They feel better without our doing anything else. For the 20% who don't feel better, that's also really useful information because it allows us to you know, know that there's a co-occurring mental health disorder and we need to dive in and aggressively treat that. A soft sign of sort of teetering into uh, maladaptive unhealthy behavior is lying. So when we are beginning to lie about what we're consuming, how much, how often, or how much effort or time or money we're investing in that, um, that should be a red flag for, you know, this kind of double life, which is so um, classic for addiction. And addiction is a spectrum disorder, right? So we have mild, moderate, severe, there's no blood test or brain scan. It's based on phenomenology, the number of symptoms, you know, which is very subjective, um, obviously. I mean, sort of when you see severe addiction, you know it, it's unambiguous. But you're absolutely right. These uh, sort of milder forms of addiction that I would uh, I would hypothesize that we're all sort of struggling with are, are much harder to identify. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also that are affecting our society in some ways. I mean, you talk you talk beautifully about how we're sort of cannibalizing our planet, even it's becoming a sort of planetary issue, you know, this unquenchable thirst for consumption. And, you know, if you look in China, for instance, they have a very different attitude to things like TikTok, and they're much more restrictive. And they'll say, you know, you can only have two hours a day, and it can only be educational programs. And because, you know, we can all go around being perfectly happy and quote unquote healthy, and yet our society is gradually having some subversive problems under the waterline, which will at some point really affect us in terms of the development of our, you know, ideas and our children's brains and our, you know, and... So I think that's something that really needs to be thought about quite carefully. And, and you raise that point very articulately in your book. And the other thing is, you know, you talk about the pursuit of pain, which seems slightly obviously counterintuitive, but, you know, and you talk about cold water swimming and, and that sort of, but, you know, you can get addicted to pain. And of course, self-harm is a form of addiction to pain. So you have to be careful about that as well. But in terms of this pursuit of pain and, you know, and I think that's where it rejoins mindfulness, the ability to sort of sit with these uncomfortable feelings and not run away from them and not medicate them. And I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, but I took away from your book sort of a feeling that, okay, you know, we should probably be prescribing a lot fewer opioids, a lot fewer painkillers, a lot fewer antidepressants. And learning to sort of sit with the discomfort of whatever physical or mental pain we are feeling or whatever discomfort it is, would you say that's accurate? Yes. So I, I definitely think that opioids and psychotropics are overprescribed. Um, certainly in the United States, we have a healthcare system that incentivizes prescribing pills and doing procedures over the kind of slow medicine that I think helps people more in the long run. Opioids in particular have not been shown to be a useful tool when taken daily for long periods of time for chronic pain. They can be helpful short-term 
uh, for acute pain, but over time they stop working again because of this neuroadaptation effect, and then they can even cause a pain or make pain worse again uh, because of the way that the, that 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 the brain then overcompensates uh, for uh, the effects. And in terms of psychotropics, you know. Just like with opioids, there's a time and a place. I'm really grateful to have those tools. In some instances, they are life-saving. But I do think that they're too easily and readily prescribed and that we as a profession are not receptive enough to helping people um, get off of their antidepressants and their anxiolytics when, you know, when the time has come or when they're ready or when they're not working or helping to simplify uh, their psychotropic regimens. We just keep adding more and more, engaging in this really egregious polypharmacy, which we know increases risks of side effects as well as um, death. So it, it is a huge problem. And then, as I said before, and when you look from sort of, you know, the 30,000-foot view at the countries where they're prescribing the most antidepressants and anxiolytics, you're also seeing the fastest rising rates of depression and anxiety. So from a population health perspective, it doesn't seem to be working. Understood. And then finally, one of the things that you talk about is radical honesty and the importance of radical honesty about, you know, your own mental health concerns or, or ones as a patient. And, you know, the problem with social media also is, is projecting this false self at this, you know, all the fake news, the false self, which creates a state of lack of safety, a feeling, a scarcity mindset, which makes us all feel less safe. And so you really advocate going back to radical honesty, both personally, and you talk about how it creates intimacy also to be vulnerable. And you say something fascinating, which is that intimacy, the dopamine release from intimacy and dopamine is connected to oxytocin, which is sort of the love and bonding uh, hormone. You know, the two are tightly linked. And so that dopamine release lasts longer also than the direct hit. Is this sort of the third um, element in your toolbox after pursuit of pain and um, abstinence, this sort of radical honesty? Yeah. So we, you know, we prescribe radical honesty along with the dopamine fast. We say to our patients and try not to tell a single lie about anything in these next 30 days, which is really hard to do because the average adult tells one to two lies per day. But one of the things that I've learned over the years from my patients who get into successful recovery from severe addictions is that they've learned they can't lie. And it's not just not lying about their drug use, they can't lie about anything. Once they start lying about what they had for breakfast or why they're late for a meeting, they're vulnerable to relapse, which is really interesting. Like, why would there be uh, you know, that connection between the pursuit of radical honesty and maintaining recovery? And I think it works on many different levels. First of all, I think ra radical honesty does promote intimacy. We have this feeling that when we disclose to other human beings our shortcomings and, and the things that we've done that we're ashamed of, that they're going to run away from us. But in fact, the opposite happens and they come closer and embrace us uh, as they see you know, their own uh, shared humanity. Um, Radical honesty also probably stimulates the prefrontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, again, being that large gray matter area right behind our foreheads that acts as a kind of break on appetitive desire. Um, and there are a number of interesting experiments showing that when you stimulate the prefrontal cortex, people are more likely to tell the truth. Um, so it's very likely to work in the reverse. Telling the truth stimulates the prefrontal cortex. It's also true that when we're telling the truth, we come up with 
a different narrative of our lives than we might otherwise. And the stories, the autobiographical stories that we tell about our lives are really important because they don't just help us organize the past. They also become roadmaps for the future and allow us to have access to certain types of information that we then use to make decisions. And after 20 plus years of listening to people's stories, I can almost tell you who's in recovery and who's not just based on the way that they tell their stories and patients who come in and tell a story in which they're always the victim of circumstance or other people, uh, those those individuals um, generally are not on their way to recovery, whereas people can acknowledge what they've contributed to a problem. Uh, those are uh, healthier recovery stories. So many different levels on which radical honesty uh, helps promote uh, appetitive control. That's amazing. And you talk also about sort of meaning and purpose. And I guess... Yeah, that, that I remind you to say just also, we are seeing more and more young people coming in with derealization and depersonalization, the sense that they're not real and the world's not real, that they're living in a matrix. To me, that's so sad. And that's largely a function, again, of sort of uh, digital media getting lost in, in this in their own minds in their own sort of dopamine chasing. Yeah, and also in this sort of false self that is created and this constant uh, looking at themselves from the outside rather than connecting to themselves from within, and you know that's very problematic. Yes, and uh, you know I, I think that's what I worry about a lot um, in in our young people, but. In terms of, I just wanted to get to a few questions that have come in. Um, one of them is about attention deficit disorder. Um, so Sheer, he says, how to cure attention deficit? What causes it? Can overworking cause it? Uh, Sheer, he says, I'm implementing more self-care, taking regular breaks from work, but it seems to be becoming a huge issue for me now in my late 20s. What would you say to that? Yeah, so I... You know, attention is also um, a limited resource. We, 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 none of us can attend forever, right? It's, it's a, the brain is a muscle, and we're exhausting the muscle as we attend. And I think there are many ways in which modern life uh, is exhausting our brain as a muscle and therefore detracting from our ability to attend the constant overstimulation, like we're almost never just sitting in a quiet space without some kind of external stimulation. So um, kind of cutting those external stimuli out, including things that as seemingly benign as constantly listening to music, which a lot of people do now in their homes, in their cars. Um, you, we can even experience some withdrawal, believe it or not, from stopping listening constantly to music. And also um, just one thing that we are doing now because of the ways in which we're constantly reacting to external stimuli is that now we then get in a loop where we're interrupting ourselves. So even if we're not responding to an external stimulus, we now think of wanting to get an external stimulus and that interrupts our thoughts. So the key here is to, again, view the brain as a muscle. And the next time we come up against a moment of frustration or boredom or inattention to just observe it and sit with it and not try to distract ourselves from it, not check email, not check our phone. In fact, get those things away from us and let ourselves just kind of sit through it and then take a deep breath and then move on. And so I think, again, structuring our lives so that we're not constantly overstimulated, recognizing that we need breaks, that we need to be physically healthy back in our bodies. And then when we have that moment of inattention, uh, to sort of mindfully observe it and wait 
and then move forward. If you look at the studies on treating attention deficit disorder, uh, the best long-term outcomes are with these kinds of behavioral interventions and workspace modification, um, which are in fact superior to any kind of medication that you could take. What is your view though on ADHD medication? I mean, I was shocked to see that, you know, um, sort of an amphetamine gives you a thousand times more dopamine than, for instance, you know, an orgasm or, or you know, you, you break it down. But what's your view on, on ADHD meds? Well, ADHD meds in the form of stimulants is basically the equivalent of street methamphetamine. So, you know, it releases directly a lot of dopamine right in the reward pathway, I know from many of my colleagues that that it can be helpful, but I do think that they are wildly overprescribed. And what I think many pediatricians and child psychiatrists aren't seeing is, you know, the 10 years later that child treated with stimulants with ADHD who then develops a stimulant use disorder, that is to say a stimulant addiction. And, and we see those in spades. So again, I think conversation uh, needs to happen about, yes, the utility, but also the significant risks and, and whether or not the benefits really outweigh the risks and whether or not there are alternative non-pharmacologic interventions. I also think that our school system is designed for a certain type of brain and makes very little room for the drifters and the dreamers, which is really unfortunate because we've essentially pathologized a type of brain, which is a wonderful type of brain and that we should really be celebrating and creating maybe a different kind of learning environment for. Yeah, and in fact, Stephen Porges, who who developed the polyvagal theory, talks a lot about making our schools safer and, you know, better for our nervous systems because he sees ADHD as a sort of nervous system reg dysregulation, essentially. And so I think, you know, our school environments are utterly key. Another question, what does Professor Lemke think of the famous Rat Pack experiment of the 60s? Does it have relevance to our present situation, bad societies that makes us stressed and unhappy and push us towards cheap addictive pleasures? Yeah, so the rat park experiment has become really iconic, this idea that if you put a rat in a cage with nothing to do but press a lever for cocaine, of course the rat's going to get addicted to cocaine, whereas if you put that same lever for cocaine in a complex rat maze with other rats and running wheels and, you know, little puffy balls of sawdust, uh, what the rat park experiment uh, purports to show is that the rat will press uh, that lever for cocaine less often. Um, and that makes sense to me, and I think we can extrapolate to human experience that when people live in a, you know, in a, in a, in an environment that is conducive to uh, healthy living, they're less likely to turn to drugs. But what I would argue is that we are not living in Rat Park. We are now living in Rat Amusement Park. That even, you know, that uh, that running wheel or other people and connections to them have become drugified, right? Made more potently reinforcing, more bountiful, more accessible, more novel. Social media is essentially a way to distill human connection down to its most addictive elements. So that's the problem. We've drugified even healthy human behaviors. And now we're all kind of struggling to sort out, you know, how can I not get addicted? Yeah. And also, I think in your book, you talk about um, some experiments that were done in Brazil with, um, you know, very poor uh, people and finding that essentially the tendency to get addicted was much higher um, when there were fewer opportunities and there was more poverty and more hardship. 
And so, you know, there is that tendency to have to look at our society as a whole and say, what are we doing wrong and what could we do, be doing better to prevent people having to escape even in sort of benign things like their phone and just constantly be, or Netflix, because they're trying to escape an uncomfortable reality. Yeah, and further, if you look at rates of psychotropic prescribing, the people in, in, you know, in almost all societies who are most likely to receive a psychotropic to control a medical condition are poor people, um, right? Which really does beg the question, are we really using uh, these pharmacologic agents as a way to sort of, you know, suppress justified unrest and unfairness. Completely. Okay, so another uh, question. Can you please clearly distinguish between what is cheap dopamine activity and what is just normal activity? Nowadays, it seems that everything is dopamine release, so the automatic answer to a dopamine detox would be just sitting and doing nothing. Yeah, great point. I mean, learning, you know, releases dopamine, right? Um, there, there, dopamine is, is it's not a villain. Uh, we need dopamine. It, it's, it's our neurotransmitter set that says, pay attention to this. It's important for your survival. But the, the point here is that there are now even traditional drugs are much more available and much more potent than they used to be. And we've drugified many other aspects of our lives. Even our food supply uh, now has sugar, uh, fat, uh, salt, flavorants. So it's actually very hard to avoid these highly dopaminergic substances and behaviors. I would say at the basic, most basic level, anything that once you start doing it, it's very difficult to stop is going to be something that is potentially, uh, you know, potentially something that could cause this kind of compulsive addictive loop. Um, and it's not to say that we shouldn't enjoy things or that we shouldn't, you know, have intoxicants in, in our lives, but it's really just highlighting the importance of, of trying to moderate that, to leave enough time in between use for those gremlins to hop off, for homeostasis to be restored, so that we can have this supple pleasure-pain balance that's living in homeostasis so that it can respond quickly to both pleasure and pain, that we're not kind of stuck in this dopamine deficit state where we're very narrowly focused on just that single reward to the exclusion of other rewards and our mental health. Okay, now there are quite a few other questions coming in. Um, do you think there's a link between men who have a sex addiction or porn addiction and childhood trauma? Also, these males being addicted to gaming. How can you tell if a guy who is who who a guy you are dating is watching porn? Is he an addict? How can this be cured if you suspect your boyfriend may be watching porn? Uh, you know, if you feel that he looks at women as objects of possession due to a porn addiction. So um, just broadly to answer that, there's a very clear link between severe childhood trauma and the development of any addiction, uh, including sex addiction. Um, so, you know, trauma is a risk factor, but there are many other risk factors for addiction. There's inherited genetic risk factors. Uh, there's uh, unemployment, poverty are risk factors. Simple access is one of the most common risk factors that we often overlook. And you can certainly get addicted even when you've had the perfect childhood, you know, if there is such a thing as a, as a perfect childhood. So um, I think that's important to keep in mind because oftentimes uh, I think people who struggle with addiction will 
will be encouraged to look for the trauma, but you don't necessarily need to have a trauma. The, 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 sub, the substances and behaviors are reinforcing in and of themselves. And with simple access and exposure, we can change our brains and get caught in that loop. In terms of practical advice, you know, about how you can tell if you're dating a guy or watching a guy, I just really encourage open and honest discussions around these things. In general, sex addiction is, at the end of the day, not even really about sex. It's about self-soothing and maladaptive coping. And people can get into recovery even from very severe sex addiction. It is, I think, a problem of of epic and epidemic proportions that we really don't recognize, especially among um, boys and men. Um, not that women are immune, but they, we just see it much less often. So I think getting it sort of getting it out in the air, talking more openly about it, and also conveying the hope of recovery. Uh, we, we address sex addiction in the same way that we address uh, addiction to drug and alcohol. So um, should those who are depleted in dopamine, such as in the case of ADHD, be seeking healthy dopamine instead in diet changes, exercise, uh, etc.? The answer is yes, and I wouldn't say that that's exclusive to people with ADHD who who tend to uh, yeah be sort of somewhat dopamine insensitive at baseline and need more reward to feel any dopamine at all. I think really, especially um, in this modern ecosystem of overwhelming overabundance, we would all be healthier uh, if we are aware of our vulnerability to this dopamine excess and intentionally seek out healthy sources of dopamine, which um, often are indirect sources, right? Where we get our dopamine indirectly by doing some, by paying for it up front. And then again, if we use intoxicants to try to use them in moderation, not too much and not too often. Great. I am a general practitioner and see patients affected by the dopamine imbalances that manifest in query mental health conditions. Could you please give one important piece of advice to general practitioners to give to their patients? I really do think that the neuroscience distilled down in this metaphor of the pleasure-pain balance really resonates for people. So I had a patient who basically said, I do what I want whenever I want. If I want to snort a cocaine, I go on my phone and have it delivered. If I want to hook up and have sex, I go on Tinder and meet with somebody and have sex. And I sort of said to him, well, how's that working out for you? You know, not very well, very unhappy. So I think what can be really helpful to people is to understand why this is, that essentially when we bombard our brains with highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that release a lot of dopamine, our pleasure neuro, our reward neurotransmitter, our brain compensates by downregulating dopamine transmission not just to baseline, but below baseline. And that dopamine deficit state is akin to a clinical depression and a clinical anxiety. So if we want to not experience anxiety and depression and live happier, more fulfilling lives, we have to avoid those intoxicants and you know, intentionally do things that are hard in order to get our dopamine indirectly and bring our brains back into balance. It sounds like a mouthful, but really pay, people understand this. And, and you know, uh, for thousands of years, we've been saying the exact same thing uh, using philosophical or theological frameworks. That doesn't tend to resonate as well as, hey, this is what the neuroscience has shown. Um, and then encourage people to experiment, again, with kind of giving up one thing or another uh, for a period of time and, and knowing they'll feel worse before they feel better, but then really having them explore 
how that makes them feel if they continue that for a sustained period. I just, this one, I'd like to hear your thoughts on control, i.e. when we're out of control in whatever way, we naturally turn to substances because it feels like we're taking control. I have issues with alcohol, the way I've lied, hid, put availability in places, etc. Um, obviously, it's always a disaster, but I keep repeating the pattern because I don't feel in control and I don't react well to being controlled. Yeah, this is such a great point because at the core of addiction is this illusion of control. Um, this, I can do this thing, you know, my, my alcohol is my friend and my lover because I can rely on them, right, to help change the way I feel and I'm in complete control. And that's whether it's alcohol or going on playing a video game or masturbation, orgasm. But the problem is that we must recognize that we have this sense that we're in control, but really our lives gradually become more and more unmanageable. Usually the drug stops working, it can turn on us, we have consequences, we're lying to people. All of this, you know, detritus, the fallout of that. And if we're really honestly being will willing to look at that, then we have to recognize that it, it really is an illusion of control and, and, our, and, it's, and, and we're not in control. And we have to be willing to, you know, this is where surrender is so important for recovery, to recognize we're not in control, to hand that control outside to something greater than ourselves. It may just be our, our community, our recovery community, or the belief that things can be better. And then try to live in the world in a new way. Radical honesty is a great starting point for this because of course, part of the way that we perpetuate this illusion of control is uh, by lying about what we're doing. But when we are uh, holding ourselves accountable to ourselves and others and telling the truth, we can't hide from that behavior anymore. And it's sort of the first step in saying, how can I, how can I live in the world differently? I can tell, tell the truth about what I'm doing. And then, you know, again, recovery community, an addiction medicine doctor to help us kind of begin to change those behaviors. And I would, you know, the, the abstinence trial, the dopamine fast, to kind of get out of that vortex of constant craving where our prefrontal cortex is essentially cut off from these limbic structures so that we can get more insight and perspective. And then I think one final question, which sort of mixes two, um, which are similar. How do you distinguish healthy dopamine sources from pathological ones, particularly how can we prevent ourselves from falling into the trap of another drug while having a fast for a different one? Right. So, you know, some, some sort of sources recommend, oh, if you're trying to get rid of this habit, just replace it with this other reward. But really, if you're struggling with compulsive behaviors, that doesn't work because of the phenomenon of cross-addiction, all substances and behaviors work on the same common pathway. They all ultimately release dopamine. So you're at risk for getting addicted to the second thing, which is why I really recommend uh, sitting with that a painful urge and watching it pass over for you, over for you, you know, no longer trying to run away from those feelings, but actually learning to sit with them very hard, doing it with another person, sharing that experience so you're not so alone in that suffering, and then actually literally turning toward the pain and maybe even welcoming it in your life and then intentionally doing things that are difficult as a way to get sort of dopamine indirectly and reset reward pathways faster because we know that that's what um, hormesis will do. And then going forward as we, in recovery, try to find, well, what are the healthy pleasures? I think, again, anything that's sort of, I don't necessarily want to do it, 
but after I've done it, I feel better. And also anything that contributes to a sense of deeper meaning or purpose in our lives. And then one final point, and then I guess we have to stop, is ought online sex, video games, TikTok, should they be regulated? And that rejoins another question that's asking, what are the U.S. Uh, parties, either of them, doing anything about this? And I guess we could ask about the U.K. as well. I mean, are any governments intervening to regulate um, these online sort of sources of cheap dopamine and TikTok especially? Yeah, so there's a lot of activity, especially in the U.K. and the United States, uh, about um, putting in guardrails, particularly for children, right? I think the idea is that adults will do what they will do, but we really need to protect children, uh, minors uh, from exposure uh, to these types of websites. What, what's, what's become difficult, uh, as I may have mentioned, is that there's a lot of concern about privacy and tracking as well on the internet. And the kind of privacy concerns bump up right against the, the guardrail concerns. So for example, in some states in the United States now, they're making people register with a third party to confirm that they're 21 years or older in order for them to be go, go on uh, you know, a pornographic website. Um, so these are the types of, you know, types of things that are look, being looked at. And then I know I need to let you go, but I just have one more. Can we still have the downside, the depression, if our drug of choice is a good source of pleasure? Yeah. So this, like, let's say, let's say, uh, you know, exercise, which we consider, consider to be, uh, you know, difficult to do, but we feel better afterwards. We don't go into that dopamine deficit state that creates craving. But, you know, more and more people uh, are presenting with like exercise addictions. Why? Because exercise has been drugified uh, with all of the technology, with the links to social media, the Strava, rankings, comparisons. So now you've taken a thing that was healthy and turned it to something that has a, a big potential for addiction. So, you know, we have to intervene there the same way where we ask people to actually fast or take a break from exercise for a period of time to reset reward pathways, because that can certainly become a very strong and compulsive loop that can cause harm, right? Injuries, uh, exercising despite injuries, a lot of time away from friends and family spent exercising. So again, your opportunity costs. I mean, just a little something I discussed in my book, but it was one of my favorite things I discovered in, the, in my research is scientists used to think that rats running on a running wheel was just a sign of sort of uh, physical vigor um, and uh, physical release. But then they realized that actually some rats got addicted to the running wheels, that moving in three-dimensional space causes uh, you know, euphoria for rats, kind of like a roller coaster for humans, and that some rats will actually run on the running wheel till they die. If you put a rat in nature, all kinds of animals will run in the running wheel as, a, as a, its independent reinforcer, even in you know the true rat park, which is mother nature. So something about uh, the ways in which technology applied to these activities can make them so reinforcing that what was once healthy can become unhealthy. Well, Anna, I have to say, I'm going <laughs> to let you go. And I really, I apologize about keeping you guys uh, so long, but there, the questions keep coming. And, you know, they're, they're I think... Everybody has made some fantastic comments. They, uh, they're very grateful for your time. I'm very grateful for your time. The How To Academy is very grateful for your time. You're an absolute font of knowledge and you're amazing. Your book is amazing and we love you and thank you. Thank you so much, Kirkland. It was great talking to you. You did a fantastic job. Thanks to all the audience for taking the time for your great questions. I, I hope this was helpful. This episode starred Professor Anna Lemke and was presented by Kirkland Newman. 
It was produced by me and our editor is John Doughty. I make the show with Nicole Wong. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>